came across a uh, simple question this week. It kind of struck me. It basically asked, how do you explain the difference between right and left? I thought about it for a second and realized there's not really an easy way to explain that without using right and left, right? I thought about it and, and I kind of pondered the number of things in our life that we use, that we say, the number of words that constantly pass, I guess you would say, in our conversation that are just embedded with meaning, which if we stop to try to unpack them, they would take us a long time. I thought about culture, what is culture, I thought about even government, what is government, I thought about language. What is language? Is it just is it a series of words? Does sequence matter? Does inflection matter? Intonation? How about facial expressions and body movement? Do they contribute to language? What is language and how does it function? It's not something that you can easily always put into words. And yet it's something that's a part of our life every day. Well, that certainly would fit, or I should say would match the, the, the problem, the issue when it comes to love. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is universally recognized as the hymn of love, the, the, the melody of love that the Apostle Paul penned so long ago and has been used in countless settings and countless weddings and all kinds of ways throughout all these days. And it's his attempt to put into words what essentially love is all about. Now it's profound in its beauty because of the simplicity of it, but it's equally profound because of the power with which it comes to us. Because this isn't some mere poet's attempt, and this isn't some uh, lyrical, uh, uh, I guess you could say, script from a music writer. These are the very words of God explaining to us or, or giving us examples of what love is. Now, we spent some time last week outlining in this passage that while Paul never mentions God or Christ anywhere in 1 Corinthians 13, it certainly is the foundation of everything he understands about love and everything he writes in this chapter. And so we, we move forward not wanting to retrace all those steps, but now moving into, we might say, the particulars, the specific descriptions of what Paul says love looks like. And he gives us here just a series of words, short, pithy phrases the key for us understanding them won't be just 1 Corinthians 13, but really the way that these words are used in other contexts in the Bible, and particularly the way that they're used in 1 Corinthians. Now here we have a lot of help, because as you begin to study, particularly verses 4 through 7, what you find is a whole series of vocabulary that in some cases are almost unique to 1 Corinthians. That is to say, some of the words that Paul uses here, he, he doesn't use anywhere else, or he might use one other place, but uses multiple times in this particular book. 
And he uses them over and over again as he has cataloged the list of issues and problems and destructive behavior that was taking place in the lives of these believers. I mean, he's talked about everything from their pride and arrogance in the opening chapters to the discord that, led, uh, that it led to in the, the fellowship of their church, to the impurity and the immorality of their life, marital strife, broken business contracts, factions, cliques, hurt feelings, strain between genders, Constant friction over jealousy in the church and the roles that we play in worship. And all of those things that are just sort of boiled down in those first 12 chapters have been given to us as a catalog of problems. And as we come to these four verses, we might say this is Paul's solution. His catalog of solutions in these short and pithy sayings. Really, the answer could be summarized in one way with a single word, love, right? Just love one another. But like so many things, it's difficult to give just one word because it involves so much. And so this is Paul's attempt to, we might say, unpack the complexity or the comprehensive nature of love. Jesus himself sort of dealt with this issue. Remember when someone asked him, what is the great commandment? And he says, the great commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And of course, you love your neighbor as yourself. That's an interesting phrase as you trace it out in Scripture, whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's repeated in each of the Gospels, because as you look at it, Each time it's repeated, each time it's recorded for us, each time Jesus apparently said it, he said it a little different. One case, he leaves out the word mind. In another case, he leaves out the word strength. In one case, he includes both of those. But all of this probably just to indicate that the point that Jesus was giving in this list of, we might say, Uh, human attributes isn't to give some sort of psychological analysis of of the human makeup or a psychological analysis even of love. The point is is to drive home the comprehensive demand of love. That is to say, when Jesus speaks about loving God, uh, much less loving your neighbor, he's talking about something that incorporates uh, incorporate or encompasses your mind and your intellect. It encompasses your emotions and your passions. It encompasses your choices and your actions, your affections, your desires, your goals, everything. It is comprehensive. It's difficult to put into just a few words. All that it encompasses. Because love isn't just words. Love isn't just a a few pithy sayings. It's more than that. It is actions. It is behavior. It's a style of life. A way of thinking. Now Paul gives it to us here in 1 Corinthians 13. In his own take. Of sort of unpacking the comprehensive nature of this. And it isn't just theoretical, and it isn't just abstract, and it certainly isn't sentimental, and it isn't merely emotional, as so much that you hear from the world is when it comes to love. In fact, as we said last week, Paul gives very little emotion here. In a couple of places, he speaks about uh, what 
what love is in terms of joy and hope. Some people would classify that as emotion. But also he mentions resentment and irritation. In other words, what he indicates to us here isn't a love that's absent of emotion, but it may very well be contrary to it. It may very well be actions of love that are contrary to everything you feel. And Paul's telling us that's genuine love. Or another way to say it, Paul isn't so much describing to us what love feels like as much as what love looks like. How it behaves, how it responds, how it doesn't respond in many cases. And he's simply driving home the fact that this isn't something that's driven by emotion. It's not dictated by emotion. It isn't something that's dependent on personal gratification. It isn't, it isn't a byproduct of good feelings. It involves much, much more than that. And he unfolds it all here for us in these 14 descriptions, you might say, of love in this passage. He, he, he attempts to explain this this comprehensive concept that we, we understand is at the core of the gospel and the core of our sanctification, the core of God's law, the solution to so many destructive forces that are active in our lives, in our homes, in our churches. And Paul presents it all to us here in these 14 short, brief descriptions. Now, he gives them to us in three basic categories. First of all, he gives us two affirmations of what love is. He follows it up with eight antitheses of love. That is eight things that love is not. And then finally rounds it off with four attitudes of love, 14 combined characteristics and perhaps one of the most comprehensive descriptions of true love that you'll ever find. Now let's begin just by looking at these affirmations of love that Paul gives us. He, he launches it in verse 4 by saying simply that love is patient. It's patient. It's a word that basically means long-tempered, or as the King James has it, it suffereth long. It is the enduring of personal injury or enduring of wrong for an extended period of time without retaliating. That's why one commentator translates it, love waits patiently, because he wanted to incorporate the idea of time, that this isn't just, just one moment of overlooking. This is a waiting, this is a patient enduring over a period of time, some sort of wrong, some sort of injustice, some sort of injury, some sort of irritation without retaliating. Love waits. It doesn't react. By the way, this isn't just waiting in bad circumstances. That's challenging enough. But if you were to study this word, what you'll find in almost every instance, it has to do with enduring not a circumstance, but a person. You are suffering long with people, with an individual, with someone who's trying you and pushing you and irritating you. The reason we do that, of course, 
Because love is always interested more in the concerns of others than it is of itself, right? More concerned with the possibility that they might see the error of their way and we might be able to turn them back rather than just immediately rush them to to punishment and immediately see them destroyed. This is so opposite of the world, isn't it? The world is constantly setting up its heroes who fight back, who take a stand for themselves, who don't roll over and, and don't make themselves some sort of pushover. They are the icons of our culture. They are the things around which our entertainment is built. They're the ones around whom franchises are built. Those are, the, those are the centerpiece of our movies. And in fact, many Christians who would be on guard against entertaining themselves in ways that glorify sex or glorify language or they would say glorify violence have no problem at all watching and being entertained by something that glorifies revenge. They do it all the while. Not maybe properly estimating the subtle influence that begins to take root. A subtle influence to begin to think this is normal or even that this is noble. That this is the way it ought to be. To begin to think that this is strength. Paul would tell you just the opposite. We cherish Patience, not not necessarily because it is held up in our culture, but because it's it's demonstrated in our God. Romans two four. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul says this is the part of the richness of God's character. His forbearance and his patience are a part of the depth and the beauty and the glory of God. It's God's patience and his love that prevents a thankless and rebellious and blasphemous world from being destroyed in a moment. It is his patience and long-suffering that allows time for people to hear the truth, to understand the truth, to repent and be saved. Ever since Adam and Eve, who originally spurned God's word, turned away from his protection, walked walked away from his loving care, ever since they initially wronged God and the haven that he provided for them and spurned his covenant and his truth, we would say, he has been uh, rejected, he has been scorned by an unthankful creation that would not exist apart from him, could not thrive without him, would know no joy were it not for him. And yet, time and time again, they reject him. Even his own people. Even his own people. His chosen people of Israel rejected him time and time again when he came to them in the flesh. But he was patient. He was long-suffering. He endured this kind of treatment from not only his own people, but from all the world. In fact, Peter makes this point explicit. 2 Peter 3, 
The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is the glory of God's character. He is long-suffering. He's long-suffering because He longs for people to see and know the error of their ways. This is why we endure this is why we're patient. It's not, because, it's not because this is what's glorified in our culture. It's not because these are the icons of our entertainment. We do it because this is what we see in God. Because He has been patient with sinful men. Because He's been patient with us, right? Ultimately, this is why we do it. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then as chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bearing with one another, he says, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So if you want to demonstrate, if you want to display a weak understanding of the gospel, If you want to display spiritual immaturity, if you want to display a heart that has drifted away from your Lord, then simply show impatience against the people around you. Grumble, complain about them, be irritated with them, and be impatient. But Paul says, if you understand what Christ has done for you, you'll put on a heart of compassion and gentleness and meekness, and you will suffer long, even with ungrateful people. If you want to put on display your true heart for the Lord, if you want to put on display praise for Him, if you want to put on display true gratitude for what He's done for you, you'll treat others in the way that He has treated you. Now, it's vital that you understand when we say this, when we ask this, when we encourage this in you, we're not suggesting that in some way you are overlooking or in any way endorsing the kind of uh, sometimes ungodly, inconsiderate behavior that goes on around you. Any more than God who endures evil men somehow is pleased with their sinfulness. We're not suggesting that somehow that you turn a blind eye to sin or you say nothing about what's going on in someone's life. What we're saying is that you approach them with a redemptive heart. We're saying that you endure and you bear up and you don't uh, uh, kill the relationship with the vitriol of your tongue or with the vileness of your retaliation. You endure long calling them back to faithfulness time and time again because you, along with God, share a greater goal of restoration, of transformation, of seeing them turn back from a path of destruction. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me over at 2 Timothy. This is exactly how Paul lays it out in the life of a servant of God. He says this, 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, 
but be kind to everyone, able to teach, listen to this, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. This is why you do it. You do it out of the heart and the hope that somehow God, just as His kindness and patience led you to repentance, may very well use yours to help someone see the error of their way. Now, if you follow this pathway, be prepared to be thought of by everyone around you as weak. This is the world's definition. The world looks at this kind of patience and it interprets your refusal to respond and retaliate as an inability to respond and retaliate. Or in some cases, a fear to respond or retaliate. It sees you doing nothing and it assumes that you can't do anything. In other words, the world looks at this kind of long-suffering and it interprets it as weakness. But if you know anything, certainly if you understand what the Scripture says about God, and if you've ever endeavored to put on this kind of patience, you know it's not weakness. As a matter of fact, Paul prays in Colossians 1, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for endurance and patience with joy. You want to know the only way that you will have this kind of heart? The only way that you will ever have any hope of enduring these kinds of difficult people, of, of, of suffering long with this kind of, of uh, ungratitude and unhelpfulness and injustice or whatever it might be, the only hope that you ever have of ever having this kind of patience is if God strengthens you to do it. As a matter of fact, this is one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul sets in Galatians chapter 5 over against the deeds of the flesh, which he describes as enmity and strife and jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, all of those natural responses that well up in our flesh when someone abuses us, mistreats us, neglects us, overlooks us, dismisses us, or whatever it might be. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, God's Spirit, It fills you and manifests patience, empowered by God. This is why Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes a man slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's a glory. Some people seem so enamored with highlighting every offense against them. Some people seem unable to overlook almost any offense. Scripture says, when we learn to bear up and to suffer long, we demonstrate the glory of our character because we're demonstrating the glory of our God manifest through us. Now, there's another characteristic that Paul gives back over in 1 Corinthians 13 that's really the flip side of this picture Paul mentions not only that love is patient, but he says also that it's kind. It's a word that basically means useful. It positively benefits. 
those who are around it. Or you could say it's serviceable. If you're a kind person, you are bringing benefit, tangible benefit to those around you. Robert Thomas summarizes the principle here when he says love because he says it is long-suffering, can take whatever the antagonist commits without responding in bitterness, and because of its kindness, can go the second mile to perform deeds helpful to the one who counts himself an enemy. So if patience and long-suffering receives injury from others, kindness bestows benefit on them. That's what Paul's saying. Long-suffering and patience will, will, will take the blows. Kindness will give out the grace. So, in a general sense, this is providing this kindness, some practical benefit to those around you. It's lifting some burden in their life, removing some burden from their day, giving some benefit that otherwise would be unexpected. This aspect of love does something, or we might say it does a number of things for someone to make their day go smoother, to make it more pleasant, to make it less of a burden, or maybe to make it more of a joy. We've already seen this as part of God's character, right? Romans 2, 4, uh, we are not to spurn the riches of God's kindness or more specifically, if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 6. Because Luke spells it out in no uncertain terms what God's kindness means. Luke 6.35. He says, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. What, what Jesus is telling us here is that God willingly benefits those that He already knows will reject Him. God willingly loves and does good and serves knowing that people will ignore it knowing that they will take advantage of it, knowing that they will take it for granted. God loves the ungrateful. God displays goodness along with patience and forbearance. He gives generosity even to the unworthy. And Jesus says, when you do this, your reward will be great. Using the future tense there, probably indicating that it's not necessarily in this life that you'll find those rewards. But what you will find, what you will find, he says, is that you will be known as sons of the Most High. You'll be reflecting God's character. People will see this kind of kindness in you, and they will associate it with God. And so these acts of kindness, showing benefit, simply simply out of the love in your heart for the Lord. One of the greatest ways to magnify His name that you have. It isn't, by the way, just acts of kindness to those 
who somehow are going to give you some kindness in return. Somehow people who are going to give you pleasure or gratification in return. Acts of service and benefits to those who are going to return benefit to you. In fact, Jesus back in verse 32 says, look, if you love those who love you, what does that benefit you? Even sinners do the same. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same, he says. So in other words, there's no victory. There's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing spectacular If you, along with all of your buddies, are just swapping favors with one another, if you, along with somebody that you have pleasant feelings toward, are just swapping favors back and forth, that is natural, that is moral, that's what everyone does. Everyone may do this, maybe for the sake of of recompense and mutual harmony, maybe for the sake of praise and recognition, they will do some random act of kindness, maybe for simply the sake of preserving their own sense of righteousness and trying to bolster their concept that they're basically a good person. But the spiritual man, he does this not with reference to the person he's benefiting. He's not doing it because of how they may respond. He's doing it in spite of it. Because our motivation for this kind of kindness doesn't come from how they respond or don't respond. It comes from God. We are kind. We look for ways to benefit others because God has been kind to us. Because even when we were ungrateful, even when we were rebellious, even when we were, uh, uh, you might say, taking for granted God's goodness, God continued pouring out grace upon grace toward us, showing us goodness. And even those of us who know Christ, and we still see the weakness of our devotion, we still see the waywardness of our walk, we still find a God who pours out again and again and again kindnesses which we could never merit, which we could never claim, which we could never own as some payback for our own faithfulness. So you, you go back to Luke six twenty seven and it says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and for the one who takes your cloak, Do not withhold your tunic either. See, Jesus is just piling together these acts of kindness. You love them, you bless them, you pray for them, you give to them, even if they're an enemy. Now, this is the kind of practical kindness that Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 16. It's the kind of love that seeks to do good, to give practical benefits, to lift burdens, even for those who mistreat you, even for those who might abuse you. Now, it should be obvious at this point, if you're going to be able to do this, you're only going to do it by the power of the Spirit. And it should be obvious to you as well that if you can do this for enemies, 
you most certainly ought to be able to do it for loved ones. As a matter of fact, this kind of kindness is, we might say, proven and built within the relationships that are closest to us. I love the picture that's given in Proverbs 31 about the excellent woman, the noble wife. It says she extends her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. So here she is. She's ministering. She's giving to people who could never give in return. She is the definition of kindness. And then a few verses later, it says when she's among her family, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her lips. That is to say, this excellent woman is teaching both by example and by precept. She has the boldness to be able to speak about kindness to her children, to her husband, because she has the life that gives testimony to it day in and day out. This kind of kindness is taught as well as caught in the home. And so, so when Paul talks about kindness, this is sort of the assumption that you're, if you're going to show this kindness, if you're going to do these kinds of unsolicited deeds of benefit and acts of service, if you're going to make yourself someone who lifts burden after burden and makes people's day go smoother and brings joy to their life, if you're going to do this, you're most certainly going to do it in the home. It's not just the wives. The scripture tells us husbands also. They will be those who love their wife as their own body. They will nourish, they will cherish, they will provide just as they would their own flesh. So the home ought to be the place where these principles of sacrifice, where these principles of of benefit, where these acts of goodness are showered all the time. In other words, the home is no place for retaliation. The home is no place for sarcastic, cutting remarks. The home for the cold-shouldered withdrawal. It's no place for intentional obstacles, hardships that you would lay in front of your spouse, your parents, your children, because somehow, some way, they've hurt you. That sort of retaliation ought to be replaced with acts of service from a genuine heart of love that really pay no regard for how particularly you are treated, but is consumed with how your Lord has treated you. Acts of kindness, even when your schedule and your plans and your hobbies are violated. Continuing to serve others when your expectations haven't been met. Making yourself useful profitable, even if you're dishonored, looking for ways to lift burdens, to bring joy, to bring benefit, because this is how the Savior has treated you. Some of you have looked at all of those things. You've looked at all of those, you might say, differences and difficulties as somehow the fact that the love has ended. 
No, those aren't the sign of the end of love. They're the sign of the opportunity. They're the chance for you to really, really show what love is. If you're just constantly scratching someone's back who's scratching yours, how do you know that's not just self-love? The love of Christ, Paul tells us, it's patient and it's kind, even to the unworthy. Eight more antitheses, four more uh, attitudes that we'll have to take up next week, and we'll look forward to that time together. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for the reminders, for the clear indicators from your word of what genuine love looks like. Father, we can only confess to you those little acts of retaliation, the coldness, the harshness, all of the withdrawal, all the refusal, kindness that we show. Because we have fallen into an idolatry of ourself and a pattern of the world. Make us a loving people. Make us a, a patient people, even with the difficult. Make us a kind people whose very presence brings blessing and benefit and service and joy to everyone that we're around. Teach us love, Lord. Simple word, but with profound, profound implications. It'll happen only by the strengthening of your spirit. And so we ask for that this morning. In Christ's name, amen.